0: Welcome back to Labor for Truth. Today, I wanted to think about um, basically children and parents, and essentially how that parallels the government. Um, so I'm going to start off with a chapter from my book, and uh, yeah, we're going to start off with that to kind of get us in the right frame of mind. Uh, I, when I was writing this, when I was writing my book, "Are You Free," um, I was thinking about like. Wh- you know how do we how do i don't mean it's simple because the book my book are you free which by the way is free permanently free on amazon is a really good kind of beginner book on essentially libertarian theory and so i was trying to figure out ways to make it super simple and i came up with this analogy that <laughs> i mean i don't think it can be really disproven um i've i mean i wrote it a couple years ago and it's still super relevant so All right, this is chapter seven of my book. It's called The Recess Analogy. When I was an after-school daycare helper when I was in high school, we used to take kids to the playground every day to play, to play. This experience is the experience where this analogy was drawn from. When children are in elementary school, the children are young and immature, so the adults set up general rules to keep them from playing unfair and harming one another. In the main area of the playground, where the slides and swings are, the children are playing games like tag. These are games that kids either made up or are playing on an imaginative level. Children play and run around based on simple rules of competitive nature. Unless the children get upset and lose control, the children play happily with one another. The adults are merely there to supervise and mediate between the children and only intervene when it is necessary. Otherwise, the children have their own system of play that develops between them. Each day they come out to play on the playground, and as the young humans grow and mature together, the strong win in a context where strength is best suited, and the smart children win where smarts are most needed. Children who lack strength and intelligence struggle to win amidst their weakness. This analogy shows a functioning libertarian society. The t- uh, Teachers do not tell the children the rules of their games. They are not dictating which games are economically or morally incorrect. They are not trying to enforce any manufactured equalizer. The children are regulating themselves by creating their own rules for the games and co-playing in the little society that they have created for themselves. This ecosystem is daily, although it is for a short period of time. It is steady and consistently held meeting time so that they can establish their own norms. This ecosystem is able to thrive because schools implement the free society principle. Tom Palmer describes this rule like this, The rules of free societies are not crafted to benefit this or that person or group. They respect the rights of every human being, regardless of gender, color, religion, language, family, or other accidental feature. Which explains why children of all shapes and sizes, skin tones, and abilities are able to coexist and play along with each other, even with their advantages and disadvantages. The The children accept one another how they are and are able to get along because of their toleration and acceptance of one another's scenario that they find themselves in, physically and emotionally. You might argue that this analogy is using too simple of an example. I would argue that you were correct, that children do not have a currency-based system or strong moral convictions which have to be acted out in their childish games, but what they do have is tolerance. The children desire to get along because they are one another's means of social interaction, competition, entertainment. Most of the country has people in public areas interacting with each other in an agreeable manner. We see someone who is Muslim praying towards Mecca or a homosexual couple holding hands, and most people accept that it is their belief and life choice, even if they personally don't agree. Why do we need the government to pass legislation that condemns certain people that hold different views? I was an atheist until the age of 16. As a Christian, I do not wish for the government to pass legislation discriminating against atheists. If I had not come to believe in the Christian message by God's grace, I would surely still be an atheist today. We all must come to realize that we are shaped by our experiences. One person might have grown up in a Buddhist family, and so naturally they are going to be inclined to Buddhism until otherwise convinced. It seems contradictory to raise children to tolerate other children's beliefs, but then when they become adults to allow them to pass legislation that is going to attack the same beliefs that they were told to tolerate. Schools in general are built on libertarian mindset of freedom of beliefs. You have all kinds of different children in schools with different beliefs, but the administration doesn't come to those students and tell them that they have to believe X thing that they, have, that they have established as a general morality for that school. Private schools are the exception, but the school is built on the idea of exclusivity so that parents can have their children in an environment that affirms their beliefs instead of contradicts them. The only exception would be the two principles that libertarianism believes are core don't hit other kids and don't steal their property why have we complicated things once we become adults why can we not keep it as simple as elementary school rules oh man every time i every time i think of that or read that it just it just man it's, it's good night it doesn't have to be complicated but all right so let's talk about this first because this sets the play for the rest of the conversation I'm gonna have. So um, yeah, uh, I think that is an interesting scenario, right? Uh, You know, all these different kids, they have different beliefs. Like, you know, I grew up with kids that were Indian. They were probably Hinduist. And um, there were kids that were a little bit, had different personalities. There were kids that had different preferences in different ways. But as kids, you know, you don't see the need to get the, the teacher to attack them or to go after them or, you know, you don't, there, there wasn't like a, the teachers weren't stepping in and helping the kids that were weak, right? They weren't like handicapping the rest of the kids, right? Um, you know, because that's, that's contradictory and that's demeaning, right? To say, oh, you're weak. Let me like help everybody help you by making everybody else weak, right? Like nobody wants to be that guy. So you know, at the very end, I said, why do we complicate things? And so that's kind of what I wanted to think through on this podcast is like the teacher child dynamic and the parent child dynamic should be basically an example of how government ought to act. And it should be a metaphor, an analogy of how we as citizens should view the role of our government, right? So it's there primarily to, you know, intervene only if something goes wrong. Like in theory, like teachers should be able to just sit there and not have to ever intervene, right? Because the kids are cooperating together and they're problem solving. And if there's some sort of a hiccup or there's some sort of a rule breaking or whatever, they try and have natural consequences set up in their group. Um. so what led me to think about this because I actually wrote a blog on this beforehand and I think the blog helped me to think through it beforehand but um, I was reading a book on boundaries and that's like a whole like paradigm that uh, two kind of psychologists um, have become really famous for and I'm relatively new to it. I mean I know about the I knew about the ideas. I didn't necessarily like have a very thorough understanding of like how to flesh that out. And so I you know, I recently read the book Boundaries and then right now I've been working through the book Boundaries with Kids. And I was reading the book um on Scribd, which is essentially the best app in my opinion that's ever been made. It's awesome. You get like it's like the Kindle Unlimited but it has like audio um, but yeah, basically it has like a huge digital library of like audiobooks and, and print books and even magazines and stuff. So I was reading boundaries with kids on there and it basically tries to help parents to set boundaries for their kids. And the two major rules that it has in there is, um, has the natural consequence rule and it has the, basically the choice rule, which they kind of somewhat overlap and we're going to get into it in a second. But um, those are the two main rules, right? And so the first rule, natural consequences says, you as a parent, you should allow your kids to be permitted to do a lot of things as much as possible. And obviously you give them guidance, but in general, like if you're, you kind of give your kids a guidance, but there's times where you're like, all right, I see they might not be making the best choice, or maybe they're struggling, right? Remember maybe they're even failing at doing something. Um, Or maybe, you know, they're not using their time well or whatever it might be, and you say, like, okay, well, there's a natural consequence built into this that's going to allow for them to, like, learn from the experience naturally. Um, And that goes back to the recess analogy, like, this kind of further builds on the recess analogy um, that, like, the teachers have that respect that there's, like, natural consequences for what what these kids do. And so you're going to allow them to, you know, if let's say for example they're playing tag if one kid you know chooses to you know run right next to the kid that happens to be it and he gets tagged well that's a natural consequence like you should have stayed away right like you know they don't need to intervene like that's part of the rules like there's there's you know boundaries set up for this for this game and obviously you you broke those boundaries um so, I'm, I'm gonna read a couple quotes. Well, the second one is basically even choices. So, it's good for kids that have choices. Um, like for example, with my son, my three-year-old son, he just turned three. Um, we say, you know, like we say, when it's time to go take a shower, you know, at the end of the day, we say, do you wanna take a shower or a bath, right? So. In his mind, he feels like he's free, like he has a choice, right? He's like, "Well, I'll take a bath, or a shower, whatever." But it's kind of a, it's kind of a trick because if we just said, "Hey, let's go take a bath," he'd be like, "I don't want to take a bath," right? Because he feel like he, he feels like he wasn't given a choice, right? He wasn't given a choice, like he was watching a show, or let's say he was playing with his Legos or whatever. Right, he doesn't feel like he has a choice. But if you're like, "Hey, let's like, do you want to take a bath or a shower?" Like, he feels empowered because he's like, "Oh wow, I can go take a, oh yeah, I don't know, take a bath." So he's not thinking about the fact that he has to go get in the water and get clean, right? But that's um, yeah. So that's that's part of parenting is sometimes you initiate choices, but then other times you allow them to organically have their own choice. But then as long as there's not any major harm that's going to come to them, you some, you can just let them learn from their own mistakes. So, the the two quotes from the book that I pulled out that I really liked that I used in the blog was this, the, this first one. Um, one of them is, quote, you are letting them choose, but making the law of sowing and reaping have reality. If they sow to irresponsibility, they will reap pain, end quote. So that's page 76 if you wanted to look it up um boundaries with kids but yeah so <sighs> that one kind of overlaps both of them and that's why i really like that quote because on some level there's going to be pain for bad choices and um that obviously goes contrary into like helicopter parenting for example and so helicopter parenting obviously says, let's say, let's say my son, Noe, he's about to make a bad choice. He's about to do it. And so I'm going to intervene and I'm going to stop him from doing it, right? And and usually the helicopter parent pretty much is going to do this universally. Um, but you create a codependency, right? Because then the kid feels paralyzed because he sees... He sees everything as a, as a major threat. He sees, um, if I, uh, well, I want to do this, but um, what is my mom going to say? Or what is my dad going to say? Are they going to try and stop me because I don't realize that there's some sort of like a pain or something that I don't see? Are they going to come in and jump in and get me? And so then it creates a dependency because the kid never develops their own ability to like try things and then fail, try things, get pain, right? Try things and like struggle right, try things and overcome, right, so, um, yeah, you never develop, like, that self-ownership in them, you never develop, like, that self-governing nature in them, and so then they always, when they, as they get older, if you don't ever take away that helicopter, that constant intervening into their lives that, like, makes them feel like they're incompetent, then they never get to learn from the pain, like, they never have the natural consequence of sowing and reaping. Um, a lot of times he brings up in the book, like older kids, like teenagers, he says, you know, okay, well, if you want to go to the movies, then you need to clean your room, right? And so then later on, they just say that, they just the boundary up. And then later on, they say, okay, I'm about to go to the movies. The second quote is consequences give us the pain that motivate us to change. I believe that's um, page 85. So yeah, without the consequences, right? Then the children never learn to change, right? And that's basically what he means by sowing and reaping. He's pretty much defining what he means by that. So um if if somebody comes to you and okay so if there's a if there's a kid and they walk up to another kid and punch them right um Somebody, a parent could could potentially walk in and stop them from fighting, but there's there's a time and place in where you just allow them to fight, right? Because if you if you intervene, right, then you're you're gonna tell that kid that he can punch the kid and he can get away with it, right? I'm not obviously I'm not saying to always let them do that, but I'm saying there's a sense in where if you're gonna punch somebody, then people might naturally come back at you right? So, that's where discernment comes in as a parent to say, okay, well, when am I going to step in and other times where am I going to say, hey, he just did that totally foolishly, just walked up to a kid and punched him for no reason, right? So, he needs to get hit back to understand that basically he's bringing the punch back to himself, right? You punch and then a punch comes back at you. Um, Obviously, you know, you don't necessarily need to make it let it go forever but there's a sense in where you you know you you sow a punch you're gonna reap a punch and so it is there's that's and you know that's self-defense right he came in him and he hit him obviously like i said you don't need to make it go forever but there's a natural pain involved in that but if you intervened and said hey don't hit him and you know you always jump in all the time well He's going to think, as long as my mom's around, then I can jump in and I can hit people, right? And my mom's not going to let them hit me back, you know, whether it be a sibling or whatever it might be. So, an example I used in the blog was, if if a kid tries to reach out and touch, like, you know, whatever, the stove, and you always stop them... Well, then they're never gonna learn that's wrong, right? You can be like, oh, don't touch the stove, it's hot. But if they've never experienced the heat of a stove and been like and had that pain, they're gonna have no memory of it. So all you're doing is prolonging that lesson, right? You're prolonging the understanding that I sow and I reap, I sow and I reap, right? So there's a natural consequence involved in making poor choices, right? Um, the book of Proverbs is huge on this. Um, you know, there's that's what he's trying to teach his son. He's saying, "Hey, look, you can be a fool or you can be wise, right? You can be a you can be lazy or you can be you know diligent like the ant." So you know he's basically giving into this idea of like sowing and reaping. You know, if you seek counsel and you seek wise counsel, you'll be wise. If you don't seek counsel and you pursue wickedness, you'll be a fool and you'll you'll come to ruin, right? So. Going in real quick uh to to h- help connect this analogy to politics and the government, the government tries to step in right it tries to intervene and make it easier for certain people right um it try you know if you're playing a game it tries to you know give extra points to certain kids um it tries to stop certain kids from doing certain things. Right, It wants to control people, and it doesn't allow for those kids to learn. And, you know, good, good parenting, and like I said, being a good teacher, as much as you can with discernment, you need to allow for them to make a choice and let that the, 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 the reaping come back to them. Um, they need to have failure. They need to see that I do this thing. And this thing happens because being a kid is a very much a simulation time. That's why you have a whole different detention system, because, you know, obviously we all know that kids are not fully developed and they can't comprehend that. If one kid, you know, beat the mess out of another kid, we're not going to put them in jail for 10 years and ruin their childhood. Right. They're kids. You know, they need, they, there's a sense in where they have to learn. They have to make mistakes. They got to, you know, they got to be able to make a choice and, and there be a relatively small consequence and give them a chance to learn. They're in a learning phase. You know, they're trying to figure it out. So <clears throat> I think this analogy is fascinating. And when I was reading, when I was texting my wife, I texted my wife saying it's pretty, it's very, to me, this is the core of it right here. What I'm about to say that it's very fascinating that good parenting parallels good government. So when we're, when we're trying to understand what it means to have a good government, we need to understand that, actually a good place to understand that is good parenting. Um, another example of this is my mom, whenever I was a kid, her her love language is acts of service so she was huge on trying to help us so she would you know clean our rooms she would put our laundry away she would do our laundry she'd make all of our food um, she would help us with all of our homework right that happened to work out because she was also had a lot of expectations and she definitely believed in self development and she would call us out if we weren't staying on top of things but a lot of kids, that would ruin them because they would, they would never have, they would never be able to develop responsibility in the sense that if they never had any sort of a reward system, if they never had any sort of responsibility, then once they became adults, they would literally just be like, I don't know how to do any of these things. I don't know how to deny myself at all. Um, All I know is that everything that's hard and that's undesirable, like it's already done for me, Um, you know, like laundry or whatever. Um, So that's, in my opinion, that particular part of it is not good parenting. And even my dad will call her out and be like, they're not going to know how to do anything, right? They're not going to know how to do any of the stuff because you never teach them, because you just want to do it yourself, because you want to love them. But there has to be a place for hey, um, you know, Tim, they would call me TJ because my name's my my, my dad, so I go by TJ in my family. So mom would say, you know, TJ, if you want clean clothes, you're old enough now that you can start to do it yourself. So, and then she would just teach me how to do it. And then she would, you know, obviously make sure I did it right. And when she saw that I understood it enough, then it's like, all right, you know how to do it now. Just like you know how to sit in class and you know how to do your homework and study for tests and you know you know how to learn how to play sports and video games, you're clearly competent. So now, from now on, there's a new responsibility you have in your life. If you want clean clothes, you need to um, put your clothes in the laundry, you need to um Put your clothes in, you know, into the washer. Move it to the dryer. Take it out of the dryer. Fold it. Put it away. And if you don't want clean clothes, then you know that's that's your that's your problem. But eventually, you know, there's gonna be you're gonna start smelling, and people are not gonna wanna be around you. So she can like preemptively be like, here's a new responsibility. Here's consequences. All right, let's see. Let's see if you can learn the lesson up front. Um, and I can be persuaded by the truth, but then she just lets me go, right? She didn't do that, but I think there's an important place for that. Um, and like another example would be cleaning up toys, right? Um, you know, my son, he's only three, but I already expect him to clean up his toys. And now he understands that because I always attach some sort of reward to it. I say, all right, you put up your toys and, you know, you can get milk or you put up your toys and, you know, and you can get this or put up your toys and we can go to the park or whatever, right? So there's... I'm, I'm showing sowing and reaping. You do, a, you do a, a thing that's responsible, you get a reward or you get more freedom, right? So, as adults, we... A huge part of being an adult is being able to like build that into our own self, right? So we have our own system of rewarding ourselves, right? So we basically self-parent, right? And that's another way of putting owning yourself. So in in my book, I'm writing a book on self-ownership called You Own Yourself, and I break this down this idea that the most fundamental idea when it comes to human rights is that we own ourselves. In parenting, the, the number one goal is to get that kid to a point where they acknowledge, they understand that they own themselves, but then they acknowledge the responsibility, therefore, to self govern, self teach, right? Self discipline, right? Self control, right? All of these ideas. And as much as you do that, the, the, um, the more rewards you'll get out of that, the more freedom you'll get out of that, and the less amount of government intervention that will be necessary you know over time um another example of this in the bible is a prodigal son the prodigal son is a very good example of natural consequences right I just thought about I never thought of this before but it is a good example because the father said all right you you want to go ahead and take your own money okay that's fine here's here's your money this is all you're getting right this is your inheritance and he takes it and he obviously squanders it right and so there's a natural consequence of like in the short term he gets pleasure right in the long term his you know obviously his money dwindles right his his standard of living is is bad and he gets to the point where he literally gets to the point where he has no money and he has to eat like with the pigs right and he he thinks about man the consequence of my actions was so like in the long term was my standard of living went terribly down i used to be one of my fathers i used to help my father and we used to run this whole business together right we had a whole business and i had it all good my dad had this whole inheritance for me and i just threw it away right but he learned his lesson the father didn't go chasing him the father didn't helicopter parent the father didn't go and look for him right he said okay do you really think you can handle our responsibility you really think that you're ready for that okay Here's your money. And he set a boundary. said, okay, this is it. You get your money. You don't get any more. You can be free. But, you know, you're going to see what's going to happen if you're not going to be responsible with this. He obviously didn't think that he was ready for his um, inheritance at that point, right? Because if he thought he was ready for it already, then he would have gave it to him already, right? He hadn't even given his older brother the inheritance as his older brother. So his own discernment said, you're not ready for this. I'm going to keep building this and give it to you later. But he said, no, I don't, I don't trust you, right? Um, and so he went and took it and said, I can parent myself, right? I can manage my own money. I can I have self control, right? He obviously was wrong. But then the pain of the humiliation of becoming that poor, walking out feeling that prideful and having all that money and then going and squandering it, Right he didn't need to intervene the natural consequence of him you know his not not managing his money well and becoming poor that was a natural consequence he didn't need to do it he gave him the choice to say hey you can stay with me and you can wait to get your money later and you can be poor and you can wait on me and trust me or you can take your money right now and you can go waste it but and then obviously in the end he took him back and he loved him well um and that's another lesson of parenting is that he talks about that in the book. He says you need to have limits but love, right? So, you know, he says, um, I was just reading this today. He was saying, so, for example, there was a girl, going back to the movie analogy, she, she hadn't cleaned her room. He said, uh, if, you, if you want to go, she said her mom had told the girl that if you want to go to the movies, then you need to clean your room. And she didn't do it. And so then she's like, mom, you know, uh, you're the worst, like your stupid rules, you know, yada, yada, just like trying to lash out in anger. And then he gives two different examples. The so one example is like, I'm so sorry. it's so sad that you're not able to go to the movie theater. That's tough. But, um, you know, we, we, we set up an agreement that if you wanted a to to movie theater, there was a contingency plan. There was, there was like the boundaries of like, you need to do this first and then you go to the movie theater, right? um, you sow to, you know, uh, cleaning your room, then you get to reap the benefit of going to movie theater, right, um, and yeah, she, she gave love, right, she said, like, I'm really sad for you that you didn't get to go, right, she didn't undermine her, she didn't condescend, she didn't say you're stupid or anything like that, she said, yeah, it's tough, like, I, I, I'm sad for you that you don't get to do something you want to do, but, you know this this pain right now that you're feeling of sadness and feeling like you know you're missing out and feeling like you all your friends are doing something you don't get to do that's that's how that's how real life is right real life is i don't pay my bills then my electricity goes out <clears throat> i don't go to work i get fired um i don't pay my taxes right then i can i can go to jail right so there's natural consequences um, that are built into society. There's natural consequences to to how you manage your money, there's natural consequences to how you treat people, there's natural consequences to um, how much you develop yourself, right? There's natural consequences to how much you value your education and develop yourself in that way, right? There's all, all kinds of areas. so. the government doesn't really need to help us develop. The government doesn't need to teach us what's right or wrong or help help certain people or certain individuals you know, grow, right? The government doesn't need to steal from certain people to take that money and give it to somebody else, right? Because that's a crutch. Um, the way I put it in the blog is, it would be like, and I'll actually this ties into what I'm about to say, this quote, this ending quote I'm about to do. Um well, yeah, this quote from Frederick Douglass. I'm about to do. If it would be the equivalent of my son when he first started walking, after he had, he was like a beast mode crawler. Like he was kind of behind, so he was crawling relatively late, but he was super quick. And, you know, naturally as a parent, you know, what on some level or another you think, Well, but you know, whatever, bye. Let's say by one year's old they're normally walking and he's like fourteen months old, so he's behind. And I'm like, whatever, it's fine. He'll he'll get there. Right? But, you know, he was a super fast crawler. And, you know, walking for him was like, well, I mean, I can like in his mind at that time, naturally he's like, I mean, I can get around really fast crawling, so I don't really see the need to try and struggle to walk. And so I could have easily In theory, I could have easily saw him trying to walk and saw him struggling and be like, "Noe, don't worry, buddy. It's okay. I'll just give you. I'll just carry you around, or I'll put you in the stroller." In this analogy, the stroller is like a wheelchair, right? And I'll, I'll just. You don't, you don't need to walk. Don't worry about it. I'll just, I'll just take care of you the rest of your life, right? Don't you worry about it. You don't ever need to learn how to walk. You can just either crawl. Or I'll just make sure you can get around some other way. I'll carry you. I'll put you in a stroller. Well, that's good intention, right? Like, hey, man, don't worry about it. You know, you're not able to do this. I'll take care of it. But then the kid never learns how to walk, right? So you're only prolonging the the pain the pain and humiliation of like wobbling and like trying to walk and like the in in the pain of like not being strong enough and falling and all those things like that's you know you have to go through that so if you let's say in theory I did that and I did that for a whole year and he's like two now and he still can't walk right I somehow was able to pull this off for a whole year and he never learned how to walk you you just handicapped that kid because even though in his mind he's another year older and he's developed in his inner person his body's not any more developed i mean yeah in a way he developed through crawling but you just atrophied his muscles and you just took away from his ability to be independent uh you took away his ability to be freely mobile because that's part of it too is being able to move on your own and so an example of this to me that i always think about is a welfare state um, when the welfare state came in and helped, you know, black women and offered said, hey, if you don't have a husband around, if you don't have a man around, we'll give you money. We'll steal the money from other people that have an abundance and we'll take from them and we'll give it to you. Well, then they never learned how to develop themselves, right? And analogously, analogously, they never learned how to walk. You, They just crawled a little bit, which is like, you know, working a little bit, right? And then, but they never learn how to fully walk. So that means they can't run, they can't jump, right? They can't really climb, right? Because they don't have the muscles. They never really develop it. So you create a codependency. And that's bad parenting, right? Like, there's no two ways about it. If a parent, God came in and said, hey, don't worry, Noe, you know, can you go my example? No, don't worry, Noe, you know, and you just, for years on years on years, and he's like six and he still can't walk, Could he have walked? Yes. Like, at that point in time, if you allowed him to try and do it and struggle for a few weeks or months, eventually he'll learn how to walk, just like almost all kids, unless they actually have a muscular issue or, you know, issue with actually walking. But 99% of kids don't have this issue, right? And you let them struggle for a little bit and they learn how to walk. But the government coming in and saying, hey, don't worry, we're going to give you money. You're just, they're never learning how to walk. Um, And so that's... It's it's bad parenting, and that would be, and that and and that would also be being a bad teacher, um, which I'll actually get into at another point in time. In the black community, there's a whole. I have a ten-part series that's going to end up being a book, and it's basically me summarizing the ten things that hold back the black community, and one of them is teachers passing kids from kindergarten to eighth grade in these black communities, right? That's another example of teachers being bad teachers that's a bad teacher if you just the kids literally knew oh, i'm gonna try um my teacher's pretty much gonna pass me no matter what there's no failure right so you're not teaching the kid to develop their mind be self-disciplined to work on their homework There's literally teachers that says he says in the book please stop helping us the book that i'm bringing all this information from which i'm about to quote in a minute um he he brings up that the like he, there, the guy was doing a uh one of the there was a guy, an economist, I believe, who went to the school, went to the school and did like a study, like a like a hyper, like, you know, controlled study on this school and was asking this girl, why do you all not really try? And she's like, one of the reasons was, well, because we know we all pretty much know we're going to get past the eighth grade no matter what. So they don't know if they're smart or not. They don't know if they would naturally pass or not, right? Because whether they should have got a 20 on their test or should have got a 60 or a 70, they don't really know. Because if they get a 20, they probably get bumped up to like a 60, right? Or if they should have got really a 40, they get like a 75, right? So they're basically, the what's happening is, The teacher's saying, oh, yeah, you can walk. Yeah, you're doing good. You can walk. But they can't, right? But they never let them actually walk. They're, like, holding them over the ground, like, yeah, you can walk. You're doing great. But they don't actually ever actually walk, right? They never actually take the training wheels off, you know? And obviously, like, yeah, like a bite you oh yeah you can ride a bike no problem but they never take the training wheels off right so they're not actually riding a bike like yes you're like pedaling and yes like there is some some level right like the kids are like learning information and taking tests like they there's not like they're learning nothing but they're they're just having training wheels perpetually right they're never actually learning and so that's being a bad teacher. And that's the same thing as what parents do if a parent came in and didn't allow the kid to walk. And so that's what the government's doing. When the government comes in and they drop a stimulus check, you know, this is primarily economic conversation, but even if the government establishes a particular, like, religious belief, right? Well, they're not really allowing people to... Not only are they violating their rights, but they're also taking away their ability to develop their own beliefs, right? If you say that, you have to be a christian or you have to be a muslim or whatever it might be then people aren't actually christians or actually muslims they just kind of follow along and they don't actually develop their own free thought right you don't have a free like an intellectually free society you just have a bunch of people that are pretenders that are pretending to be muslims or pretending to be christians or whatever it might be right and so it's all pretend and that the more the more the government intervenes the more that people are condescended and the more that they're actually handicapped by the government. And it's like the parent that would intervene and say, "Oh yeah, like don't worry like me like if I was like, yeah, don't worry, no, you don't need to learn to walk, like don't worry about that, dude. Don't. Don't even sweat it. I got you." Right? It's he's like if he's like 18, right? And he just never learned to walk like think about how limited he would be he would be constantly codependent on people i mean i guess in theory he can learn to try and like motor around but like there was no real reason for him to like be in a wheelchair literally like me intervening and not allowing him to ever walk and him just taking like, his muscles just atrophying like is insane like it's terrible that would be a terrible parenting and that's just an example of like being able to walk right and like i said being a teacher like you just terribly detrimented those kids because they made it to the eighth grade, but they don't actually know the information. They don't have any, like they don't have what it's, like he said, the sowing and reaping, right? They don't have any pain that teaches, that motivates them to change, right? Consequences, like he says, consequences give us the pain that motivates a change. If a kid keeps failing and not doing their homework and and failing and failing and failing and failing and failing, and then finally it accumulates with gavels dropped, you failed second grade, and you got to all your friends go to the next grade and you have to be humiliated and be there again right and do the exact same year all over again right that pain of failure is gonna be like it might not for sure make you want to do it but eventually you're like dude i've done second grade four times you know i'm i'm wasting my life right and you're like supposed to be in sixth grade and you know you're in second grade and like all your friends keep going away and going to the next grade and like your other friends are literally not in the same school as you by then in this analogy you know so i think this analogy really helps to understand that just because the government has good intentions doesn't mean that it's helpful so just like a parent has good intentions of helping their kid to be able to get around not to worry about it it actually has bad results because the kid never learns how to walk And like I said, with a teacher, the kid never learns how to actually think for themselves and develop discipline and actually become smart. They actually become handicapped and are perpetually stupid. Um, I mean, they say if you get one year behind, you're already in big trouble, let alone if you get to the ninth grade and you're like, yeah, I don't know. I don't really know anything. Like, I'm not you're you're basically screwed. You can't go to college. Um, I mean, there's no way Uh, you're basically they just like condemned you to being an idiot. So. To bring to bring this to a point, um, in the in the introduction to his book, uh, Jason O'Reilly and stop, please stop helping us. He brings out a quote from Frederick Douglass, which basically parallels what we're talking about because when blacks were first freed, they um, everybody was trying to figure out, okay, what do we do, right? So these people have been. For multiple generations, for like a century and a half, I believe, they've been, for better or for worse, codependent on the white man, right? On, you know, on these uh slave owners, right? How they were treated obviously at times was terrible, but um they didn't really have to worry about food or sheltering like that, right? They like like a child, they had all their needs met. Like as long as they worked and they put their time in, like, they reaped the benefit of having food and and shelter and all that, right? Well, now, all of a sudden, you're taking them and saying, okay, well, now you're going to try and do this without anyone's help. So, it seemed like, is that the right, like, they had the question, like, is that the right thing to do? Like, what should we do? Like, should we, like, take a part of our money, and, like like, basically, they were, like, basically, they were asking, should we do the welfare state? back then, right, and this is, like, in, like, the late 1800s, like, after the Civil War and blacks were freed, right, they're, like, essentially what they were asking 100 years before the welfare state came around was, should we do the welfare state, should we take money from these rich white guys and essentially do, like, reparations, like, kind of, like, subsidize them and help them, you know, to kind of transition from being essentially, like, enslaved us not knowing anything at all and to now like they're supposed to be able to do everything like fully right so and we even kind of saw that with like the uh israelites in the old testament right uh things got hard right like they're wandering through the desert you know which obviously their situation was pretty terrible but nonetheless like pretty quick they were like ah man we should go back to egypt because at least we had like food and stuff like sheesh like i mean if we die out here like obviously i would have rather just been a slave like i mean it was pretty terrible but i don't have to worry about my food or shelter right like at least like i had like a purpose and a function and i didn't have to be afraid that i might die because i might not have enough water like just like what are we what are we doing right like walking around right so it's a legitimate question right because like i said yeah, it's very rare other than, I mean, other than the egyptians it's not like been i mean other than israelites i mean not There's not been a lot of people that I've just been like let go in mass like that, which man, that's why I love talking Uh, because I just I didn't I never made the parallel in my head to this uh, until right now. But yeah, so Frederick Douglass is in the midst of that conversation and he's like seeing that the white man is like kind of teeter tottering on how to handle the whole they're free, but they've never been free before the analogy I give is imagine if you had a, like a whole people group that was like in jail for generations right so let's say obviously this is how it goes right now but let's say in theory like all Native Americans were in prison right and they were institutionalized in this prison and like they like had but you had like both male and female there so basically they had like a whole other ecosystem in there of people and you know people would marry and have kids and all that and they were like segregated out and they were stuck in this place right and for generation on generation people were like were born in the jail system and then they married somebody else and then they had kids right and they had kids they never had to worry about providing for their food or any of their needs, right? But they, obviously they were stuck, which is terrible. Like you shouldn't like inst- like cage people into a, a place together, but like all they knew was like generation after generation after generation they were like stuck in jail. So to me it's pretty similar. It's like, all right, one day we just let all the Native Americans out of jail, like should we like help them or what? So Frederick Douglass comes in and says, and essentially directly deals with this and has a very, very strong answer that is very libertarian, very, it very much parallels this idea of boundaries. Um, You know, basically the government was like, should we be like a helicopter parent and like help y'all transition? Should we intervene and like put you in the wheelchair, right? Essentially in this analogy, or, you know, should we be a teacher and just kind of like just kind of like let you, you know, just pass all the grades, right? You know, bringing all the analogies together, and he says this quote: "What should we do with the with the Negro?" He's like giving a, he's like he's giving a speech at a university. Said Douglas, "I have had but one answer from the beginning: Do nothing with us. Your doing with us has already played the mis- uh, mischief with us. Do nothing with us. If the apple." will not remain on the tree of its own strength. If they are worm-eaten at the core, if they are early ripe and disposed to fall, let them fall. And if the Negro cannot stand on his own legs, which funny because I brought it in earlier about walking, right, in the wheelchair. If the Negro, like I Negro is his word, If the Negro cannot stand on his own legs, let him fall also. All I ask is, give him a chance to stand on on his own legs. So, basically, they were wanting to say, should we put, like, all black people in wheelchairs? Because we don't think they can, like, walk? Like, it'd be like somebody never walking before, and all of a sudden they're, like, 18, 18. And you're like, so do we, like, put them in a wheelchair? Or do we just, like, let them struggle and, like, try and figure out how to walk? Like, should we just let them, like, be humiliated and fall and struggle and kind of, like, bebop around and, like, you know, just, like, have to use support from objects and, like, I can't really walk and, like, you know, just have these, like, super weak legs that have no idea how to walk and have no muscle memory of it, right? And so they were tempted with this very thing to intervene and just, like, quote fix the problem by like hey we'll just give you some money and we'll just like make it easy on you like don't worry about it and he was like please don't do that that no we're never going to learn if you just like give us like slavery 2.0 because he realized that if the government came in and intervened well then you're still dependent on the government and, the go- and then and you're, then you're then you're essentially still enslaved Right, it's just like a light. It's like slavery light, right? Because you're still enslaved. You still don't have independence, right? With a kid that can walk, they're independent. They can go over here. They can run over here. They can go on and play on the playground. They can run and they can jump. Right? They're independent. Right? They can, you know, do a lot of different things. Like if they, oh, I want to go to the fridge, or I want to go over here, or, I want to go play with my friends. Like they don't. They can just their own. They are self-willing, right? But if a kid is in a wheelchair, well, they have to get permission, right? Well, can can you please, can you take me over here? Please, can I go over here? Please, You know, they have no freedom of will. They have no ability to do anything on their own. They have to always like ask for permission. So he, he saw that like long term being like, yeah, it's not going to work. And we've seen that now with the welfare state. We have 60 years of essentially the government coming and saying, hey, yeah, don't worry. Come sit in the wheelchair. We'll take care of you, right? And now we have very weak people right we have a very poor people group that chose to take the handout but the deal was the handout said you're not allowed to ever make any more money than this if you make more money then we'll take away the handout so you create this disincentive to say well if you start if, if you try to start walking right if you start to be independent well we're just going to you know we're going to help you out less we're going to bring the wheelchair around less well if all you've had is somebody Bring you like push you around in a wheelchair, you get really used to the codependency. So Frederick Douglass agrees with the boundaries with kids philosophy, basically is what I'm trying to get to. His view of the government parallels his view like John Town Don Townsend and Harry Clown's view of good parenting, which is like I said, natural consequences and freedom to choose. So to bring this point to a close, I'm gonna read a section in his book that talks about different people groups, and then we'll we'll end this podcast there. This could be multiple hour long conversation, but I think that y'all get the point. This, this bringing in like analogies for me are fascinating, and I think they're really helpful for people to understand things that are new. Um, to bring in like real life parallels, I mean, basically it's a parable, right? Jesus. Um, Use a lot of, like, natural real life things to tell his stories, right? All right, so we're in, uh, like I said, we're in Jason L. Riley's book, Please Stop Helping Us, which, man, I love this book. It's really good. It's really helped me to um, see the facts on the black community and see the truth of how – because, actually, let me say that real quick. Please Stop Helping Us. The subtitle is How Liberals Make It Harder for Blacks to Succeed. So if you break that down, he's saying liberals come in and bring the wheelchair of subsidies and intervention in, in the welfare state, and they actually make it harder for us to succeed. And it's not just a welfare state. He talks about a bunch of different stuff. But, um, all right, so this is a relatively long quote, but I think it really naturally explains the point. He's talking about, like I said, different people groups. Some people groups chose to have chosen in the past and do choose now to not depend on the wheelchair of the government but other groups did and then actually like was detrimental to them so quote the economist thomas Sowell has spent decades researching racial and ethnic groups in the united states and internationally and his findings show that political activity generally has not been a factor in the rise of groups from poverty to prosperity many germans came to the united states as indentured servants During colonial times, and while working to pay off the cost of the voyage, they shunned politics. Only after they had risen economically did Germans begin seeking public office, culminating with the elections of President Hoover and Eisenhower. Pause real quick. So, yeah, so he brings up how the Germans shunned, you know, being a part of uh, the government, right, until they paid off their debts. Uh, Second people group is, quote, today, Asian Americans are the nation's best educated and highest earning racial group. A 2013 Pew study reported that 49 percent of Asians aged 25 and older hold bachelor's degrees versus 31 percent of whites and 18 percent of blacks. The median household income for Asians is 66,000, which is 12,000 more than white households and double that of black households. Yeah, Asians have little political clout in the United States. There have been a handful of prominent Asian-American politicians like Governors um, Bobby Jindal of Louisiana and Nikki Haley of South Carolina, but Asians have tended to avoid politics compared with other groups. Between 1990 and 2000, the number of elected officials grew by 23% among blacks, but only four, by 4% among Asians. 4%. Even Asian voter participation lags behind other groups. In 2008 Asians were significantly less likely than both blacks and whites to have voted. So we see there that they're the most educated but and then the highest in- income earning but yet they have very little people in government, they very little they won't vote very often. Um, yeah, so overall all the different levels whether they aspire to be in those roles or whether they, they want to even partake in it, they don't care. Um, in this part, he's in the part of the book. He's actually bringing up, um, he's talking about how uh, everybody had a lot of hope, and you know, the, the end of the chapter is black man in the White House, and they, they're like, the the big the. This is, a, we'll have a conversation about this later on. But just a real quick sidebar to help understand the context. The big conversation in the past in the black community is whether they should focus on self-development, which is the Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass kind of guys that, obviously I just quoted Frederick Douglass, that said, we don't need to focus on the government. We need to learn to, you know, analogously walk on our own. While others said, no, we need to get the government in, get us wheelchairs, and depend on the government, right? We need to go get put government people into the power and, and to rely on them. Um, he was talking about how... Um, up until, I believe it's the 60s or 70s, basically around the time of the welfare state, there was only 1,500 politi- black politicians by, I want to say, like 2010, or pretty much up until now. There's now 10,000 like black politicians, right? So obviously they've sought those roles. But nonetheless, so Germans, back a long time ago, colonial times, were like, now nah, we're not going to pursue political power, and therefore, obviously, we're not going to pursue, you know, by implication, we're not going to pursue... They're relying on the government, right? We're going to try and develop ourselves and become more valuable in the market and pay off our debts. And like I said, Asians make even more than whites and they're more educated than whites and yet they don't believe in, they're the most libertarian in practice, which I'm going to make a whole podcast on this particular subject just to really break this down later on. But the other side of it is you have, um, let's see. Yeah, so the other the other group that actually focused more on the government and relying on the government, basically they they wanted the wheelchair, in this analogy, and they wanted the teachers to pass them, um, were the Irish. So he says, moreover, in those instances where the political success of a minority group has come first, the result has often been slower socioeconomic progress. The Irish immigrants who came to the United States in the mid-19th century arrived from a country where 80% of the population was rural, yet... They settled in industrial centers like New York, Philadelphia, and Boston and took low-skilled jobs. Their rise from poverty was especially slow, as late as 1920s. 80% of all Irish women working in America were domestic servants, despite the fact that Irish-run political organizations dominated local government in several big cities with large Irish populations. To most Americans today, it is not... Immediately obvious that the black migrants who left the rural South for the industrial cities of the North starting in the 1940s resembled the Irish immigrants who left rural Ireland and crossed the ocean to the great cities of the Atlantic seaboard starting in the 1840s," wrote Paul, uh, political historian Michael Barron. Yet, the resemblances are many. Among other things, explained Barron, both groups looked to control of government as a means of advancement and both excelled at politics. They built their own political organizations, modeled on their churches, the Irish, hierarchical political machines, blacks, ad hoc organizations assembled by charismatic local leaders. They were initially the object of competition between Democrats and Whigs or Republicans. But within about 20 years, both became heavily, almost unanimously Democratic. Both used politics to create large numbers of public sector jobs, right? So that's that's the whole wheelchair thing. Both used politics to create large numbers of public sector jobs for their own people. In some cities where they were majorities, Boston and Jersey City for the Irish, Detroit and Washington for the Blacks, they created predatory politics which overloaded the public payroll and neglected to enforce the law, ultimately damaged the city's private economies. Yet it was only after the decline of the fam- uh, famed Irish political machines that average Irish incomes became to, uh, began to rise. Irish patronage politics was not the deciding factor in group advancement, Barron noted. Society addressed the ills of the Irish through private charities, the settlement house movement, temperance societies, and police forces, all of which tried to improve individuals' conduct. And to help people conform to the standards of the larger society. The Irish rose to average levels of income and education by the 1950s. In the 1960s, an Irish Catholic was elected president of the United States. Solon, Barron are conservatives, but some liberal scholars have made the same point. So, we can see empirically that the groups that said, No, thank you to the wheelchair, right? The analogous wheelchair of government intervention, right? Financially, whatever it might be. Um, They're the ones that actually did better. And the ones that most said, no, we're going to do this on our own. And we're going to cooperate together and, you know, freely help each other amongst ourselves is the Asians. And like I said, the Asians are the smartest and highest paid. So, yeah, the As we can see, the Asians had the most boundaries set up for themselves, right? And they had the highest expectations of one another. The Germans had the boundary of saying, hey, yeah, we're not, we're going to, you know, we're going to focus on trying to get financially right. We're going to try and get rid of our debts. And, you know, yeah, it's painful for us to sit here and go through this um it's painful for us to have to you know develop ourselves and to walk and to to grow and to do it on our own and to learn and to have to you know go through being poor and it would be in the short term easier to just try and get political power and get jobs through you know like the irish did you going to be put on the government payroll but they knew in the long term that wasn't going to really help them um and like he says, once the Irish gave up the desire to use the the wheelchair, that's when they actually started to, like prospering, and that's when they actually started becoming you know economically viable and part, being part of the middle class and all that good stuff. So I think that analogies like the recess analogy, thinking about like being a good teacher, being a good parent, or being a bad teacher, being a bad parent, help us to see government in a new light i think it gives us a good paradigm and it helps us to see that the way that government should be has already been developed right the way that the government should interact with its people has already been developed and we've already seen that being a helicopter parent um or being a being a teacher that pretends like students are doing better than they, than they are is actually really detrimental and has a really negative effect. And so the government coming in and trying to help, quote, help by intervening with good intentions has a result of, of really handicapping and actually really, really hindering um, any people group, but Irish, or, Irish or white, you know, um, blacks obviously are blacks. Like it, the Irish would have, like if the Irish wouldn't have uh, gave up their desire to pursue politics, they would still be held back right now. Like, you would have Irish leaders in politics, but they would still be poor, even though they're white, right? So it really has nothing to do, per se, with their race. Um, Up until the welfare state, the blacks had... uh, I was watching an interview real quick um, that said from 1890 to 1940, so basically kind of right in the middle there in 50 years, blacks had a higher percentage based on the consensus, the census data, they had a higher marriage rate than the whites for like 50 years. And that was even before, um, welfare state. And they were already basically becoming more and more skilled, more and more educated. And they were already, um, like making the gap between white and black income less and less. So, the more and more they took seriously Frederick Douglass' mindset of just let us walk on our own, develop ourselves, the better they did. It was when they all of a sudden decided we're going to go ahead and get in a wheelchair, even though we can walk, even though we're getting stronger, even though we're prospering, we're going to go ahead and take the hand out and we're going to say, no, it's great. Let's get in the wheelchair. Let's just go ahead and be passed along out of out of guilt and pity or whatever it might be by the teachers, right? But in the end, it was very detrimental. And that's Basically, the biggest thing that holds back any people group, any, any, any individual, is people trying to take the easy way out. People wanting to choose to take the easy way out and not suffer, um, you know, the consequence of pain, right? And so then they never change. And they're just like, perpetua- basically, they're perpetually immature, perpetually entitled, perpetually codependent, and all this. And so, let us, let us learn from what it means to be a good parent let us learn what it means to be a good teacher let us learn from these different people groups and see the data and say no it's more it's the asians are the most prosperous people group and they depend the least on the government and they care the least about what the government does aka they're the most libertarian people group that we know of um they they don't necessarily think that they're libertarians but they are accidental libertarians so I wanted to share this because I just find this information super fascinating. And I just ran into it and I was just like, man, it's so parallel. Like everything he's saying over here about boundaries and good parenting is the exact same things that libertarians, um, limited government, you know, minarchists say about the role of the government. So. All right, guys, I'll see you all in the next one. Later.